Hello, everyone. My guest is Dr. Arthur Snyder. Dr. Snyder, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I understand you're in town for the PhD immersion at Indiana Tech, correct? That is right, yes. So tell us a little bit about what that event is and what your involvement is. Well, we have about 150. You notice I said we. I'm still part of tech. <laughs> Old habits die hard, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have about 150 PhD students, doctoral students in global leadership. And there are two immersions each year, one in April and the other in September, where students have the opportunity to come on campus to get into a collegial mode with one another and with faculty mm-hmm. and to advance their uh you know, direction toward a graduation and a degree, a, a PhD degree. So I'm here to facilitate one of the sessions and to be one of the colleagues. And otherwise, these students are doing a lot of their work online and remotely. So this is a chance for them to get together, sort of a rare chance for them to meet collectively with their peers and, and folks like you and actually have some face-to-face interaction, correct? That is correct, yes. The, the program was designed primarily as a distance education program mm-hmm. with some immersion opportunities for students to get together and to build on that learning. Yeah. Well, it's a great program and really glad that you're part of it. And we're going to we're going to come back to all of that because most people listening to this podcast will know you as the former president of Indiana Tech. So we want to talk about that. But I'd like to start by hearing how you got there because you have an interesting path for someone who is the president of a university. Um, I'd like to hear from you when you started thinking about where you wanted to go in your career, what you did with that, and then when we get down the line, where you made the pivot to higher ed. Well, I I guess I'm somewhat embarrassed to say (laughs) in my high school days, uh, I really didn't have much direction. Well, you're in good company on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I did did okay in high school, uh, but wasn't very studious Mm -hmm. and uh, decided, as did many of my uh, related predecessors to join the military. So Mm -hmm. I did that right out of high school Mm -hmm. and and ended up doing a couple tours of Vietnam in Mm -hmm. the 60s. Mm And uh, as a part of that experience, I recognized that uh, officers in the military lived better than enlisted (laughs) men. Yeah. And maybe I should continue uh, uh, to get an education. Sure, sure. And and that's what I did after after that time in the military. So what was the the first stop? You're, You're back home and settling into your career. What were some of the first stops along the way? Well, for a period, I stayed in Mississippi where I was stationed, Mm -hmm. and I started college at Tulane University Mm -hmm. in uh, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. But um, here again, there are a lot of distractions in New Orleans, so (laughs) I I ended up heading back home to New Jersey where I had grown up and uh, decided to continue to take some courses and to work and to, you know, build a future. Mm -hmm. Uh, But still, to a certain extent, rather aimless. Yeah. And in, in where I was heading. Yeah. Again, in good company on this podcast. And I think it's good for people to hear that because there's a lot of folks I know who are smart and capable, but they haven't yet determined what it is they want to do. And that's a big part of it is figuring out why you're doing what you're doing leads to a lot of motivation, and a lot of direction. But if you don't have that, especially in your early to mid 20s, it can take you in some different directions. Well, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, in a sense, what we built that tech during my time there, uh, created some direction for mid-career people Mm -hmm. when we added a lot of programs that uh, were were there to address uh, people that had either dropped out of school or had never gone to college. 
So we served a lot of students in that fashion. And I became one of those because here I was six yeah. years out of the military, working, getting married, mm -hmm. uh, and hadn't finished the degree. So yep. I, I tried to do that as quickly as I could. Well, and at that time, there were fewer choices for working adults to continue their education. So how did you do that? How did you make it all work when you were pursuing further education as a, as a working adult? Yeah, well, this was so many years ago that there really wasn't any online education. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that particular point in time, if you were able to do uh, uh, what we used to call correspondence mm -hmm. programs, things mm -hmm. of that nature. Yeah. But basically, every undergraduate class uh, and credits that I earned was actually in a classroom at night mm -hmm. or on the weekend. Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't that long ago for me. It was the early 2000s that I was in a class at night. Yeah. <laughs> so there was really not much online at that time. So things have changed dramatically since then. Now, now you end up, if I'm not mistaken, working for AT&T for a good portion of your career, correct? Yes. Uh, actually, I had a stint at virtually every one of the Bell System companies, okay. we used to call it you know, the Bell system. Sure. Uh, I, I first worked for Southern Bell, mm -hmm. which became Bell South, mm -hmm. and then for AT&T, the, mm -hmm. the parent company, uh, and eventually Lucent Technology, which mm -hmm. uh, th that name doesn't really even exist any longer sure. in, within the Bell system. But yeah, I spent uh, a little over 20 years and built a, a career there and left as uh, one of the vice presidents in data, the data systems group. So that was my business career per se. Sure, and and there was some marketing in there in that job. So that that uh, legitimizes you as a member of the Asher Marketing Podcast, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you're, you're at AT&T. When do you decide, this is, this is one of the things I'm most fascinated about, when do you decide that you wanna move into higher ed and how do you do that? Because most people who are in leadership positions in higher ed have always been in higher ed. How does that happen and why does that happen? Yes, I, I think that that's true, that many people in higher level positions in higher ed have been there most of their career. Mm -hmm. But I believe that began to change as long ago as 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, um, I had just completed an executive MBA, which was uh, something that uh, AT&T asked me to do as a part of my career path. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I had the opportunity to teach a night class. Mm -hmm. uh, I mm -hmm. finished the degree and uh, someone uh, was interested in me becoming a part of a adjunct faculty and I did it. Uh, and I liked it. Yep. Uh, it um, it did something for me. Mm -hmm. I hope I did something for the students. <laughs> yeah. But it did something for me to see people eager to learn, wanting mm -hmm. to grow, wanting to build on a career, wanting to do something for their family. Uh, so the interest grew uh, over time, and uh, a couple of things happened uh, in parallel. One was uh, the Bell system was d divesting, mm -hmm. companies were changing, mm -hmm. and my career path might have hit the top of the, uh, you know, the pinnacle mm -hmm. of the triangle, and I had some choices to make. Yep. You, you know, continue and know that I might be hitting that ceiling, mm -hmm. uh, or make a considerable change in yeah. how I earned a living. Sure, and, sure. Uh, the, with great counsel from my wife, Camille, uh, she, encouraged me to do that. So what is what is the transition in terms of how the opportunity to move into higher ed? How does someone say, we're going to work with someone who's worked in industry and bring them into our institution? How does that conversation start? 
Well, interestingly enough, in, in my case, um, th- there was great interest in that I had experience yeah. in what we commonly call the real world. <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, that I might have some insights and some ways to take what might be theoretical mm-hmm. and move it to the empirical and mm-hmm. uh, practical yeah. plane of learning, if you will. So there was interest in that. And the, uh, the person who was interested in bringing me in to do that um, had some, um, I guess, dreams of building new types of education platforms, mm-hmm. many of which are now part of our, our sure, world. Sure, sure. Well, and, and you know, Indiana Tech, not to leapfrog ahead, but Indiana Tech really got that early. And that's when I talk about my experience as a, as a working adult, and going back to school, I actually did it twice. The first time was at another institution. It was the traditional model where I'm standing in line at the bookstore, um, spending way too much time on campus, not in class, and trying to manage the rest of my life. Now, at that time, I didn't yet have a son, so it was a little bit easier to manage. Fast forward to wanting to pursue an MBA, and I'm like, I can't do that anymore. What are my options? And really, at the time, there were two. Indiana Tech was one of them. And the more I heard from the university, the more it became clear, oh, they're going to they're gonna keep me out of the red tape of higher ed and just let me be a student. And that really was true to my experience, but not a lot of other institutions were doing that at the time. Um, how, did, how did you see the future there? Because you're a big part of Indiana Tech making that possible. What did you see coming? Was that the influence of others like the person you mentioned, or was that something that you had unique knowledge of coming in? I won't claim any unique knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I will say uh, I give some credit, of course, to to my predecessor, Don Andorfer, Mm -hmm. uh, because he actually started it. Mm -hmm. We had had one location in Indianapolis, uh, and uh, fundamentally it was a set of classrooms. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't really what we would call online distance sure. education. Sure. But we, we had a start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in those days, we had you know, a, a small number of students in that program. Uh, but there was a building. The funnel was growing in terms of the number of people interested. Mm-hmm. And we knew that there were in the range of 600,000 people in Indiana that had what we call some college mm-hmm. education. Yep. Uh, some college education, but no degree. Mm -hmm. And that was the market. That was what we were focusing on as our key market. Uh, So uh, we ended up with, I'm not sure how many locations Carl has now, but we ended up with like around 15 or 16 locations Mm -hmm. because what was very important to our plan to uh, inform students about what we were offering and hopefully persuade them to take a look was to do that on a personal level. Mm-hmm. You know, in today's marketplace in higher ed, you, you're, you're getting pelted with all kinds of efforts to uh, bring you into a variety of different schools, Western governors, mm-hmm. uh, Purdue Global, University of Phoenix, and it goes on and on. But back then, uh, we, we felt that what worked best for us was being able to engage a prospective student mm-hmm. face-to-face yeah. uh, and uh, answer their questions and do it in a very uh, you know, congenial way. Well, and, and genuinely, that was my experience. That's why I chose Indiana Tech. And it's been probably one of the two or three most important institutional relationships in my life. And it started with, I wish I knew who the person was because it was basically a recruiter. 
but they were incredible. They were great. Answered my questions. The right tension between enough attention to make me feel like I mattered as a prospect, but not so much that it felt pushy. And I got that from other institutions. And it was a clear, easy choice. And then my experience along the way reflected that. So I think, you know, to the extent that that he deserves credit, Dr. Andorfer got that right. And certainly I know you were a part of that, so you got that right. So let's talk about your time as president of Indiana Tech. What were some of the highlights of that? What were some of the things that you're most proud of? Some of the things that you believe made Indiana Tech better because of you and your team? Some of the things you experienced in that role? And what I miss most about Tech are the people, mm-hmm. you know, the students and, and, the, and the team and the people. And uh, I think we built a pretty strong team to be able to take us uh, into uh, the, the fork in the road for what, what I consider to be the uh, the, the two fundamental markets and drivers of revenues in higher education, and that's the traditional market, mm-hmm. which continues to shrink and continues to have its difficulties in creating net revenue. Mm-hmm. And we have what we've been talking about primarily here, and that is the online distance education hybrid mm-hmm. types of programs, mm-hmm. which typically turn significantly more dollars to the bottom line mm-hmm. than a traditional program. So if you're looking at it as a business, yep. that's where you want to be. Sure. Uh, you know, I use one of the examples I use is Southern New Hampshire University. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul LeBlanc, who's been there a number of years and basically took a bankrupt institution mm-hmm. uh, to the point now where it has tens of thousands of students. It's really doing a great job in the programs that they're offering. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line of business measures uh, look very good. Uh, so I think, it, you know, we were able to, I believe, to, to do both of those things on a smaller scale than a Southern New Hampshire mm-hmm. or a University Phoenix. And that's what I see as being a, a successful journey into the future as well. Sure. It's where tech needs to be as do many other institutions. Well, well, because of the success tech has had, you know, over the course of the past few decades, I think some people don't realize that it was in dire straits at one point prior to Don Andorfer, prior to you. And, you know, it's really a great story of recovery in higher ed, how the business model, put, you know, applying a business model to an institution sort of saved the institution um, and really grew it into a, a leader in, in the industry. Were you were were you given a, a template from Dr. Andorfer that you followed, or did you bring in some you know new thinking or different thinking, or was that there from the start? Well, I think there was um, a set of practices that were in place that that we continued to follow. Mm-hmm. I think we, uh, we we made the flywheel go a little bit faster sure. in terms of you know scoping that up. One of the things that uh, I'm reminded of, one of the things that Don told me when I came into that seat and he, was, um, just remember, you're in charge. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, yeah. Um, take credit for nothing. Take blame for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happens when you're- yeah. uh, That's uh, leadership in a nutshell, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in a way. So, uh, yeah, yeah um, he gave me some good guidance, mm-hmm. much of which I offered in the same- tone and with the same vigor to, to Carl when he mm-hmm. became the president. Um, but And Don was a, a great leader at 
particularly at that time. He came over to Indiana Tech from, uh, I think it was Indiana Business College, mm-hmm. with a fellow by the name of Tom Scully, mm-hmm. who became the president, and unfortunately he passed away, and that's when Don took the mm-hmm. leadership role. And Don was president for, I think, 17 or 18 years. He was at Tech for over 30 years. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So, you know, it's it's also, it says something, I think, that some of the folks you worked with are still there. Obviously, Carl's brought in some some new folks, but people like Judy Roy, the CFO, who is, you know, as solid as it gets in that position. Um, Brian Englehart, who I could, you know, uh, give all kinds of praise to, but I won't. <laughs> but Brian, you know, has been in the marketing seat for quite some time. Steve Herendine, um, your name comes up quite frequently at our marketing committee meetings, by the way, at the board meeting, because those folks were there when you were there. And it was a team that I think really had a a respect for the fact that higher ed is different than most businesses, but also understood that at the end of the day, it's also a business. And that's one of the things I think that higher ed is learning, um, but it wasn't always there. A lot of higher ed institutions, I, I was talking to someone the other day about a time when marketing was kind of a dirty word in higher ed. It was something that you'd have communication or community relations or development, but it was never called marketing, and I think that's changed over the, the recent years. Yeah, a, another interesting change that's kind of related to that uh, uh, the subject of marketing is uh, w- we never uh, thought about uh, sales in a higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we never thought about a business model yep. in higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, faculty uh, oppose that type of language, but yeah. uh, they've come to also come to understand that uh, we do uh, offer a, a great product that's needed uh, in our regions, in our country, but it also has to be at some level of financial performance mm-hmm. or it can't exist. Yes. Sure. And we're facing this in our country today in a pretty grand scale. Yeah. Well, that leads me to uh, another thing that I, I'm interested in hearing your perspective on, and that's the future, where, where everything is going. And I, I don't suspect you have a crystal ball, but you have some knowledge about what the future of higher ed looks like. It, it's an interesting time um, because there are multiple challenges, some, you know, hastened by the post-pandemic world, some that were there and all along. What do you see as the future of higher ed at a time when people are questioning its relevance, at a time when others are saying, hey, still the best way to move up intellectually, still the best way to move up economically? What does the future of higher ed look like from your perspective? Well, I would start off by saying that there's continuing debate, and it was there 20 or 30 years ago, uh, maybe not as... uh, uh, loud as as the, we hear it today in the trade journals but the idea you know that a college education doesn't have the same value that it did in the past is is really hard to defend because mm-hmm. when we look at the statistics we see that baccalaureate degreed people are earning considerably more than a high school graduate and of course if you take it a, a, a rung lower than that to dropouts from high school uh, it gets even worse mm-hmm. uh, what is major in terms of the change in higher education is we can't just think of degrees as higher education any longer uh, because we have uh, any number of different vocational programs that are really quite good and necessary Mm -hmm. to fill positions. And we have these things now that we call stacking and badging, Mm -hmm. which allows somebody to kind of earn their stripes, using Mm -hmm. a military uh, term, earn their stripes in different areas that really pay off in terms of career satisfaction Mm -hmm. as well as financial gains for the employee Mm -hmm. and for the employer. 
bringing the kinds of skills that are needed in the positions uh, in their businesses. Um, you know, in that regard, if you think back, uh, again, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 50 years ago, you had to have that credential to get the attention of mm -hmm. the hiring manager. Yep. Uh, today, mm -hmm. what we're seeing a major shift in is employers want to see the skill set. Mm -hmm demonstrated skills and abilities as opposed to the sheepskin per se. Mm -hmm. So you really need both. Sure. You, you, you really do need both. And what other uh, areas I would touch upon is the, the changes in delivery systems of education. You know, we've talked about sitting in a classroom mm -hmm. and, and gaining uh, knowledge that way, which is still pertinent and still relative, uh, particularly for uh, the new high school graduate, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for the uh, the learner that wants the socialization of a campus life, uh, you know, in the case of tech and other schools, a lot of student athletes, mm -hmm. things that are engaged. So I think that will always be there, but it's never going to have the numbers that it once had mm -hmm. uh, in terms of 17 or 18 million students in higher education on campuses. Mm -hmm. So campuses today are managing some, uh, managing uh, the shrinkage of their footprint when it comes to physical space and enhancing and growing their ability to deliver programs in online using technology, uh, AI, a host of other things that are uh, really needed to deliver education in a, a, a variety of different ways. The last thing I would say is this. Um, even the high school graduate may be looking for alternative delivery systems mm -hmm. and not want to go to a physical campus or may have to serve their family in other ways, mm -hmm. like earn a living while they're going to school. That means on Sunday afternoon for four hours, instead of watching the football game, they might be doing their homework. Mm -hmm. We see more and more of that across the country. Well, it's it's almost as if we went from you can succeed without a college degree to you should succeed without a college degree, which is a pretty big leap. And, you know, I've said this before, but I, I would have a very different tra trajectory if not for a college education. It's really the thing that I say saved me. And I think there's a lot of young people in that position. We, we talked about it earlier, just not really having direction. Uh, my belief is that certainly a college education can help you learn a specific trade, a specific uh, skill set, but it, it teaches you how to learn. It teaches you how to do difficult things that you can opt out of, but you push forward and you do the work. And I would, I would hate to see that go away or be diminished. Uh, is, is this a function of the fact that there is so much choice that people are looking past the choice that's always been there? Is that part of the problem? I think so. I think it is uh, because there are so many different options and different opportunities. Well, one point you just made that I think is, is, is important is that of uh, having a well-rounded education. And if you send someone to, uh, let's say, welding school, they're gonna learn how to weld, but they n may not learn how to interact with other people mm -hmm. at the level that an employer might want. So even in vocational settings, we're seeing curriculum changes that are including uh, you know, workplace types of real world issues that people will face when they go into the job market. Mm -hmm. And so there's uh, um, somewhat of a focus on what we typically call the liberal arts 
mm-hmm. you know, the humanities mm-hmm. and other types of things. It's a different blend and a different amount of education, depending on uh, w- what direction you might head in. But we see that being uh, developed and included in a lot of different alternative delivery systems. Yeah, well, it really is, as you mentioned, it's both. It is the experience, the ability to demonstrate to employers that you're going to be productive from day one, while also getting the well-rounded education that also makes you a good citizen of whatever employer you work with, because there's leadership traits that you learn in college. Even if you don't know that they're leadership traits, that's what you learn. And I think that would be sorely lost if we went to a, a model where it was simply you're going to learn a trade. And that's all you're going to do in college. You know, we we in this country, I think for a long time, the perception was there's two paths. There's either high school and then a career that you don't need a college education in order to enter or a four-year degree. And I think what's great about 2023 is there's seemingly infinite options in addition to those two paths, but some of that old thinking still exists, that it's either no college degree or four-year degree. And, you know, another thing that Indiana Tech has always done well is offer options. Now you see certificate programs in addition to two-year degrees, accelerated programs and others, and that choice, I think, is what the market seems to be asking for and others are delivering, but some some are not quite there yet. And, and that's where I want to go next is to talk about, it's a big topic, but the business side of higher ed. Because you have institutions that are enormous, institutions like some of the ones you mentioned, who are you know, delivering quality programs online to thousands of students. You have the schools that have been around and have a legacy as state institutions, IU, Purdue, et cetera. You have schools that have adapted to the new model like Indiana Tech who saw online coming and built an infrastructure for that and also have a residential campus. And then you have institutions that are behind that are delivering quality education on campus, but they're not doing much else. What's the future for those institutions? Well, uh, it's really somewhat clear, yet somewhat blurry. <laughs> you know, we have about 4,200 colleges and, and schools in the United States, and about 2,500 of those are private institutions. The rest are public. Now, of course, uh, the larger group of students are in the public institutions, uh, and their funding is a little bit different than private institutions. Sure. Uh, but we see uh, both of those sectors having much greater interest in business modeling than ever before. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier I said we never much talked about marketing or sales or students weren't clients, they were students. Yeah. Uh, Well, that that perspective has changed and the view is kind of enlarged. And the same has occurred when it comes to business modeling, budgeting, things of that nature that institutions, like most organizations, are kind of plagued with. as a part of what they have to do. Sure, sure. So uh, in in today's world, we have as many as a rough rough estimate, 650 to 800 institutions that are physically challenged, Mm -hmm. uh, financially uh, kind of on the brink, cash flow problems, planning problems, uh, budgeting problems. And some smaller number than that are in some jeopardy of failure. Mm. Now, we've seen schools uh, and the closure of schools accelerate just over the past few weeks or months. There's been a number. Casanova College in New York is closing. 
holy names in California. These are primarily all small mm -hmm. uh, private institutions. What we've seen happen in the public sector is more uh, merging and closures of certain campuses, mm -hmm. but you know, we haven't seen any uh, public institutions per se close. But we, we expect uh, some acceleration of that over mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. because we have capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the ability to educate many more people than sure. we are today. Sure. Uh, so in terms of the business modeling aspect of this, we see institutions paying more careful attention of how they can generate revenues to stay whole financially outside of the tuition-driven world that they mm -hmm. live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason for that is tuition uh, uh, today is a different model than it was in the past in that the discounting of tuition has grown for many institutions uh, uh, beyond the 50% level. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've seen as they've raised their sticker price, they've had to discount at a higher rate mm -hmm. in order to attract students from a financial perspective. So what are they doing? And here we get into maybe more of the marketing aspect sure. of this. How do they create a distinctive competency? Mm -hmm. You know, what's different mm -hmm. about Indiana Tech than, say, Oregon mm -hmm. Tech? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that's become a, a big challenge but a big focus for institutions uh, because that differentiation might just make Johnny go to Indiana Tech instead of going to Oregon Tech. For sure. And it's, it's also marketing to parents of traditional prospects because they're part of the decision making. Their perception is, I know it was true when my son was choosing a college he was he was going to go away. We knew that he needed to be on campus somewhere and and learn you know how to interact as an adult with other other uh, emerging adults. But you know we really gave him some some guardrails, if you will, and his choices were limited. Um, so I think sometimes that's a, a a misstep when colleges don't market to the parents as well because they're part of the decision making process. Obviously, it's it's different for adult and online students, but in terms of the institutions that um, are, you know, only residential, only, you know, small um, and, and, and uh, private institutions, one of the big factors well within my lifetime is that it's not just your competitors and not just the ones who are down the road, right? When I, when I was looking for options, one of the things that was very much a factor is I need to be able to go to campus. Now you have increased competition from online only or online primarily institutions. Is that going to cause more partnerships, more shakeout, more college closers in your mind? I think it's inevitable that it does, but what does that look like from your perspective? Yes, um, and that has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years as so many other things have. It used to be that 75% of your students would come within 150 miles of where your institution was located. Mm -hmm. Um, but that that has changed fairly dramatically, and, and we see more students moving from w one institution to the next uh, based on w where they think they're going to be most comfortable mm -hmm. and where they can get the best deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, looking at curriculum as well, whether the the program is offered there. Uh, so I, I would see that continuing to change. More and more people are going to either start and complete their education online than ever before. Mm -hmm. It's a very high percentage today 
when I got into higher education, uh, that percentage was about 5%, mm-hmm. you know, 3 to 5%. Uh, more than half of the degrees awarded today are online degrees. Mm-hmm. So it's, that, that, that will continue. Um, I think that campus leaders are looking for ways to engage students uh, in the classroom, the academic responsibility, but also in other activities that, uh, as you've pointed out for your son, help them grow as as people, become part of something, Mm -hmm. interact with one another, um, and, and the social aspects of that. Uh, many smaller institutions, Indiana Tech's a, a good example of this, uh, have, I don't know, five, six hundred student athletes on mm-hmm. a campus mm-hmm. now that become kind of a, a, a sector of the institution that, that will continue to grow. We've seen institutions over the last 10 or 15 years grow athletic programs mm-hmm. to help to track students and add that vibrancy mm-hmm. to a campus. Uh, I believe that all of that will continue. What leaves me somewhat uh, uh, quizzical and uh, uninformed is what is AI going to do to this? (laughs) You anticipated the next question I was going (laughs) to ask because you and I started this conversation online. Yeah. Yeah. What what is your perception of of whether AI is a positive or a negative in higher ed? Well, I I think it has the potential to be very positive. uh, like so many other things, though, that potential is based on <laughs> what happens and how we implement yeah, it's it. It's really up to us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and and I'm I'm the first to admit that uh, I'm not uh, anything close to an expert in this area. Mm-hmm. I'm learning just as everyone else. Sure. Is. I mean, I had to look up Anthony. What you know? This is called Chat GPT. What does that mean? Yeah. Gen- generative pre-training transfer transformer yeah oh gosh what is that I scratched my <laughs> yeah head. you need a nap after that right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said what is that all about you know and I've learned I've read some about mm-hmm. it I've, but I haven't seen any modeling in an institution yet mm-hmm. uh, that says this is how we're going to use it yeah. and um, why we're going to use it how we're going to use it when we're but I think it has significant potential yeah uh, I don't think it will replace the teacher sure sure but, yeah. Well, and you know, there's there's probably truth in the middle there, right? Because I, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about it's the end of education because why, you know, why will students be compelled to do any work if the um, if the technology can do all the work for them? I really don't see it that way. I see it as another tool students can use, and maybe what it does is it changes the way students are assessed. You know, it's not necessarily the only model or the best model to tell student students the way to demonstrate your expertise is by writing a thousand you know thousand words on this topic or 10 pages on this topic that's just what we've always done right and i think it's it kind of brings together some of the things we've discussed and something that I, I genuinely believe Indiana Tech does well is experiential learning. And and don't just tell me you know how to do it. Actually show me that you can do it. You know, it's it's been my belief for a while that a differentiator for Indiana Tech is and can continue to be having students leave with either an embedded credential in addition to their degree or a significant internship experience, real work experience. And to me, that is much better than being able to demonstrate knowledge in writing. Both are good, but just because it's what we've always done doesn't mean that it's what we need to continue to do. No, I agree with that. I think that, that that's the direction we'll head in with this. I, I can remember uh, when um, 
Al Gore invented the internet, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, there were similar conversations. Mm-hmm. This is going to change the world. No one's going to do any real research or yeah. work because it'll all be at our fingertips. And uh, that hasn't happened. I mm-hmm. mean, we haven't used the internet and, and the digital world perfectly, mm-hmm. but in a sense, we've used it pretty well. It mm-hmm. has its shortcomings and failings. But so I think we may see the same kind of thing with uh, AI. There are naysayers out there that are very worried about what it's going to do to job markets and other uh, you know ill effects that could occur from it but sure. I, th- I think uh, we as humans need to uh, manage that yeah for sure for sure so next generation that's on you figure out how he's going to be integrated into society that's right that's why we're educating you today for exactly. tomorrow <laughs> well let's talk a little bit about how you're spending your time these days because you're retired, but like a lot of people who have had an active professional life, not really retired, you're doing some consulting work. What does that look like and and how are you taking the knowledge that you gained as a university professor and using that today? Uh, I remember uh, when I was heading into retirement, talking with a college president who had retired and this person um, uh, told me about the effects of retirement, the early effects, and, and uh, disclosed to me that they felt as though they lost their identity. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't plan on having any trouble with that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend time with family, grandchildren, yeah. so forth and so on. So after about three months of sitting by the pool, reading the books I hadn't read, and something happened. You, you know, I started to get a little itchy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it was... Providence, divine intervention. I got a phone call from a colleague who I would work worked with dozens and dozens of years ago, and said, "You know, I'm at AGB now, the Association of Governing Boards mm-hmm. for Higher Education, and we could probably use uh, someone like you to help us with some of the work that we're doing. Are you interested?" And at first, I said, "Well, it's higher education. You know, I've spent some time there, and I, I do have some experience, but I'm not sure that I want to do that." Well, to make a long story short, I, I did mm-hmm. jump on board and, and, and do that. And along the way, I started to get engaged in consulting projects, oftentimes with a teammate, uh, a, a CFO-type mm-hmm. person or someone like that. And, and we started working primarily with private institutions, a lot of small private institutions. And the, um, the effect of that on me was pretty profound in the sense that having had my own experience as a president and somewhat of a myopic view mm-hmm. of uh, our place in higher education and what higher education was really like and and kind of juxtaposing that against what I was reading. As I'm going out on these engagements, Anthony, I'm finding uh, that maybe it's quite a bit different than the model that I'm hearing about and reading about mm-hmm. and that there are institutions that really need to be making changes and transformation mm-hmm. uh, and they're still on that timeline that the academy often moves mm-hmm. on way too slow. Sure. Uh, so uh, we we moved into areas of, of of consulting that were really strategic and tactical, and and forecasting the future of these institutions if they didn't make certain changes mm-hmm. based on our best views, opinions, assumptions, as well as you know data that we could analyze. And uh, along the way, uh, now that I've done about 35, 37 of these projects, I see the world a little bit differently. And it concerns me in a sense that uh, we do have capacity in higher education 
and we do have institutions that are on the brink of failure, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. as well as others that uh, continue to struggle and are unable to deliver the same kinds of benefits to students that they might have in the past. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, uh, I'm working for the NACUBO, which is an acronym for the National Association for College and Business Officers. Um, and the reason I switched from AGB to NACUBO is it's much more operational. Mm -hmm. The AGB focus is board of trustees and presidents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I, I really like to get my hands into the matter, sure, uh, as opposed to dealing, you know, with governance and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Well, as Greg Sengstack says, <laughs> boards are nose in but hands off. So you want to be more hands on. It sounds right. like. Yeah, yeah. Well, in addition to that, you're spending time with your grandkids, correct? I am. And how many grandkids now? I have five grandchildren, four boys, one girl. Okay, and what is, what's the age range? Uh, 17 to 3. Okay, all right. So you've got basically anything you want, you can find it in one of your grandkids. Very true, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I usually ask our guests in closing to answer a few questions, but I'm going to ask just one of you. What is your best career advice? If you were talking to someone, you know, it could be your son, it could be someone just starting out in their career, and, and you were to pinpoint the one thing that you think is most important for people to focus on to build a fulfilling and successful career, what would that be? Boy, that causes me to think uh, <laughs> deeper. <laughs> I would say uh, the first thing that comes to my head is be prepared. You know, I've had a long and sordid career of sorts. <laughs> and and um, the, in working with people that seem to be prepared for whatever the day calls for, whatever the project might be, whatever that knock on the door might be to uh, work with a colleague or uh, uh, a client, uh, to be prepared. I, I've had situations uh, all along my career path where there's probably been uh, a, a lack of preparation by people who expect their careers to take off. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think, I think that that uh, is important. And I would segue into a second item, and that is in the world we live today, there are so many things we could focus on mm -hmm. that one of the challenges we face is what not to focus on, mm -hmm. meaning here's what we're going to work on, here's what we're going to ignore. I think people that make decisions about their daily work, their timelines into the future, that that would serve them well. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is I think uh, people tend to, to work or to, to, to kind of mull over the same things over and over and over again and really not get to the important tasks at hand. So mm -hmm. those would be the two things that I would focus on. Well, that's great advice. And, and to the second point, you know, we live in a world that's wired for distraction and there's a lot of stuff that it's just better to opt out of and focus on yourself. Focus on what you can do to give back and to be the best version of yourself you can be. I, I'm still working on that myself, as I'm sure most people are, but um, there's there's a lot you could pay attention to in today's world, but only a fraction of it really deserves your attention. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for doing this. This has been great. Sometime I hope we can continue the conversation when the microphones are off and we can talk in more detail, but thank you so much for everything you do. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you to everyone who took the opportunity to listen to this episode of the Asher Marketing Podcast. We'll be back next time with another great guest, and we hope you'll join us then.